Okay, Liz, here's some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs, you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. The following podcast contains explicit language. Oh my God, did you look in the writer's room? It's completely empty. I know, we've been abandoned. It's almost over. Oh my God. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Sarah Fain, a TV writer and producer living in LA, and with me is my high school friend and writing partner of 18 years, almost 19, Liz. That's me, Liz Craft. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career and friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. In this episode, we'll answer a question from the mailroom about how to make an impression. And then we'll talk to one of our all-time favorite directors and my professional crush, Liz Friedlander. And we'll share a Hollywood hack that will help you not freak out when Googling medical questions. But first, a very exciting update. Yes, I want everyone to check out my sister Gretchen Rubin's 10th anniversary edition of The Happiness Project. Gretchen started a blog over a decade ago to chronicle her year of trying to become happier, sort of changing her life without changing her life. And she wrote a memoir called The Happiness Project. It was a huge bestseller, and it came out 10 years ago. Um, And so now she's got a new edition with a new introduction and she tells you what everyone's up to because, you know, her daughters, when she wrote it, were very young. Yeah. And now one of them's in eighth grade and one of them's a freshman or no, a sophomore in in college at Harvard, I have to mention. (laughs) Um, So anyway, it's a great new edition. And anyone who hasn't read The Happiness Project, it can be life changing, as you can tell everyone. Yes. And I'm going to try and get through this without totally bursting into tears. But I think if it hadn't been for the Happiness Project, I probably wouldn't be a mother. Um, okay, fuck this. That's so <laughs> annoying. Um, uh, yeah, I think if it hadn't been for the Happiness Project, I probably wouldn't be a mom. Um, I When I read it, I was sort of at a time in my life when I was trying to figure out, like, what I was sort of going to do. I wasn't married. Mm-hmm. I had this, you know— I always thought, like, you have to get married and then have kids. Mm -hmm. And then I read The Happiness Project and I realized, like, wait a minute, my happiness is important. And I literally, I don't think it had ever occurred to me before (laughs) that that really mattered. Um, And it completely changed my life. And my happiness project really was deciding to become a mom on my own and having Violet. So 
It truly is a life changer. Yes. So get the 10th anniversary edition of The Happiness Project and... um, Maybe something just as life-changing will happen to you. It's happened to Sarah. (laughs) And then, Sarah, we also want to do a quick reminder. Tuesday, November 6th is Election Day. It's right around the corner, and there are so many close races all over the country. So truly, your vote matters. Sometimes people don't vote because they don't think their vote is important, but it's so so important. It is. It's so important to be a voter and let your voice be heard. And this is a super cool thing. If you don't have a a car or a way to get to the polls, Lyft is offering free rides to the polls. So call Lyft and let them take you because voting is one of the most important things we can do as Americans. And you want to be able to wear your I voted sticker and be smug. Exactly. You can't do that if you don't vote. You can show it off all day. (laughs) So that is our reminder. Okay, Liz, it is time for our segment called The Mail Room, in which we answer a listener question about the entertainment biz. Yes. Mariana asked... I just landed my first gig as a writer's PA in a really cool writer's room. I'm so excited and grateful for it. I'm doing my best to excel at my duties and show everyone how great I am, but I wanted to ask if you had any extra advice for me, things that perhaps I can't see from this side. Um, Well, this is an excellent question. It really is. Now, we have a fantastic writer's PA, Jackie. We've mentioned her on the show before. Um, she's stellar. She really is. Um, one thing I think you can do is keep in stock what everybody uses and likes. That's probably yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. And for people who don't know what a writer's PA oh, does. Yeah. Start um, there. Yes. They order office supplies like toner, dry erase markers, tape. They stock the kitchen. They get lunch. They get dinner if you need it. Um, and they're a pinch hitter for whenever other assistants are out. So there's sort of a jack of all trades mm-hmm. in the office. Jackie of all trades. Jackie of all trades. trades. Um, Now, getting lunch orders correct is a big deal, and it is the bane of every writer's PA we've ever known. Every day in most shows, you all order lunch, and it's getting that order in at the right time so that you can pick it up in time to get it back at a decent hour. Because when people get their lunch late, they get very grumpy. Very cranky. Um, And getting the order right. So that is huge. So you want to check the order at the restaurant and make sure it's correct. And there are often people like me who have special dietary things like no gluten, no sugar, food allergies, whatever. Just making sure that you're on top of that in the ordering and when the actual food comes. Yes. One thing um, that's really good to do if one of your bosses is, say, gluten-free is to say, oh, hey, we're going to X restaurant tomorrow. Um, They have plenty of gluten-free salads or whatever, just so they know you've thought about it. Well, and Jackie will often say, we're going to this restaurant tomorrow. Would you rather go to this other place that she knows Mm. I like? And she'll go to two places because there will be something that, you know, there will be a restaurant where there's just not really a good option for me. Yeah, the other thing Jackie does, which I think is great, and you should see if this flies at the show you're on, is she emails the um, menu the night before. She'll say, tomorrow we're going to the carving board for lunch. Here's the menu. Um, And then it just speeds up the whole process, and everyone emails her their order, so you don't get into this thing where we're just like, passing around a menu and a sign-up sheet for an hour and a half in the writer's room. 
It's really a good idea. This is an innovation from Jackie, and it's it's pretty great. Yes. Um, now, another thing you want to do to stand out to me as a writer's PA is let people know your career ambitions. Yeah. Um, let them know if you want to be a writer, like, I want to be a writer. Ask if you can be in the writer's room. Um, now, you can't be in the writer's room to the extent that you don't do your other duties. But as we've said, if you're doing everything you need to do, it tells us you're really serious if you make a point of being in there. Yeah. Jackie is in our writer's room a lot. Mm-hmm. Um and she is, I think, amazing at, like, getting everything done. And then she goes and she can spend hours in the writer's room. And for someone who wants to be a writer, there's really nothing better other than just writing a lot yeah. than being in a writer's room. Because Absolutely. it is, it's sort of like going into, it's like when a plane lands in another country and you don't speak the language. Mm, total immersion. It takes immersion. a while. Yeah. yeah, it takes a while to kind of be able to just understand what's happening yes. and the way the conversation runs. Yes. So it's so smart to get that time in. And then back to the practical, Sarah. Yes. I mentioned having in stock the things people like. So people in our office like little nut packs. Make sure we always have those, which yeah. we do. If you know what kind of Quest bar I like, chocolate chip, mm-hmm. make sure we always have Quest bars. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, and then this is a big thing, keeping things cold. So it's not yes. enough to have like the Coke Zero, which I like. You want to make sure there's cold Coke Zero. So it's like these little comfort things and little sort of treat items can get writers through the day, especially during a really tough time. And it really makes us feel taken care of. I mean, I speak for all the writers, not just us. I think when I say like it, it just means a lot to have what you want available. And that also for us is a lot of apples and bananas. Yes. Apples, bananas and walnuts and almonds. And then in our case, don't bring shitty food into our kitchen, which Jackie doesn't do. She knows (laughs) not to do that. Liz leaned extra close to the mic to say that. (laughs) It's so true. Um, Yeah, Sarah, this reminds me of Chuck, our producer, his old boss, Jimmy Iovine, who's a huge music producer, you know, the biggest there is. He started as like a runner in the studio, and he says he always knew what kind of tea people liked, and he'd always have their tea ready for them the way they liked it, and that's how he started up the ladder. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Any job you're going to do, you need to do as well as you can, even if it seems menial or if you're not being compensated well for it. Yeah. Because people notice whether you pay attention to details or not. Yeah. Oh, it really is. When I, (laughs) this sounds silly, but when I open the refrigerator and I see all the LaCroix Mm -hmm. and all the Diet Coke and it's like full up to the front and I know people have been taking them all day. So I know Jackie has been restocking. Yes. It makes me think, okay, she is like on it. She is responsible. This is someone we can trust. It's so small, but it's so big. Yes. So let me just say to Mariana, it might seem like, oh my God, I'm a writer's PA. It feels so far from like being a writer. But it's a great way in, even though you're doing things that feel very far from writing, such as ordering a lunch, <laughs> it is a way in. And so people, good for you. Yes. And the people that you're working with will learn a lot about you yes. from the way you do the job. Absolutely. Okay. Coming up, we'll interview one of our favorite directors, the brilliant and amazing Liz Friedlander. But first, an ad break. 
Liz, there is nothing I love more than having a delicious meal that I didn't have to cook, which is why I have been getting no prep, no mess meals from Factor. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Last night, I had blackened salmon with broccoli and with cauliflower rice. It was so delicious. It was the perfect dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash HIH50 and use code HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code HIH50 at factormeals.com slash HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Okay, Sarah, it's time for From the Treadmill Desks Of, in which we discuss what's most pressing in our work psyches. And this week, it's being a badass, particularly a woman and a badass. Yes, because we are talking to one of our favorite badasses and my professional crush, Liz Friedlander. Liz is one of the most sought-after directors in television. This season, she directed the pilots for ABC's The Rookie and CBS's All Access Tell Me a Story. Previously, Liz co-created, directed, and executive produced Conviction for ABC and the Mark Gordon Company. Her other directing credits include Jessica Jones, The Vampire Diaries, The Following, and the pilot for Stalker. She's also currently writing a put pilot for ABC. Liz made her move from the small screen to the silver screen with her first feature film, Take the Lead, for New Line Cinema. Before that, she directed over 100 music videos for artists such as U2, R.E.M., Joss Stone, Alanis Morissette, Dido, and Seal. And she's received honors from both Billboard and the MTV Video Awards. On the commercial front, she's also helmed campaigns for Target as well as Weight Watchers featuring Charles Barkley and Jennifer Hudson. Liz attended the Drama Conservatory School at Carnegie Mellon. She then attended the University of California, Santa Cruz, followed by UCLA Film School, where she graduated as the valedictorian of her class and won the prestigious Frank S. Glickman Award for her short film, 1120. And Sarah, we have to mention that she's extremely stylish. This is true. Yes. Yes. So, Liz Friedlander, welcome. Thank welcome. you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Liz, we've talked about how you are a total badass. Um, but one of the things I love about doing a podcast is that we find out things about people we know that we didn't know before, which is you were the valedictorian of your your class at UCLA. I was. That's you crazy. Have, that's amazing. Did you give a speech? I did. Oh, wow. <laughs> I did. And it was the year where uh, the MPAA was censoring things and where Murphy Brown got all this oh. press and uh, Jack Valenti was the other speaker and I went after him. I I, oh. I tried to be a badass, yes. Oh, yes. Wow. At, you know, 21 years of age, yes. uh -huh. Yeah. Oh. Nice. That's amazing. And did you go to school wanting to be a director? When did you have this notion that that's what you wanted to do? You know, I thought I actually wanted to be an actor, which is mm. the craziest thing to say now because it's so not who I am. But uh, I went, I started going to drama conservatory and I got there and really within about two weeks realized I made a massive mistake. Like mm -hmm. I just was not cut out for it, to be really blunt, like the auditioning process and the ego involved. And I was just, as a human being, not prepared for it. Um 
And I went to one of my professors, and he said, why don't you just direct the one-act plays? Don't drop out. Just direct the one-act ah. plays. So I directed the one-act plays and then dropped out mm. <laughs> promptly thereafterwards. <laughs> um, and then went to uh, school to study theater and thought I wanted to direct theater and then kind of broke up with a boyfriend and took a photography class and kind of drowned my breakup in the dark room and started working with stuff that way. And then kind of on a lark applied to film school and got in. Wow. And were there many women in film school with you at that time? You know, there were. I, th- I think it was a mandate to have women in there. You know, the interesting phenomenon when I went to film school was there were always kind of half women in the class. Mm-hmm. And then when they came out, mm-hmm. they didn't always translate into careers. Yes. Right. And how did you see that happening? You know, a lot of this is stuff you don't realize until a lot yeah. later. You mm-hmm. know, I think when you're in it, you're just, and I was, I didn't know anybody in the industry. I was just so desperate to work that I kind of put my head down and just went. You know, a lot of this stuff um, about being a woman in this industry, I have really, I mean, it's a little embarrassing to say, but have started thinking about very recently because I just just was working. You know, I yeah. just didn't think about it. I didn't look around. I kind of felt like I couldn't look around. And I kind of just went. You are one of those few women getting the TV directing jobs. What's interesting to me, and we experienced this as young, younger writers, is that there is a phenomenon where if you're one of the few people who is getting jobs, like we were in, as women in television, then there's lots of opportunity because like, well, we need a woman. We right. need a woman. Oh, Liz Friedlander yes. is a woman. Yes. We'll hire yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah. She's <laughs> awesome. If you can somehow get on that list, yeah. then you're in high demand. Yes. What we need is more women on those lists, of course. Yes. The but question is how to accomplish that. Um, and I don't know that we have any brilliant ideas. You know, I, I think what's interesting is that people talk about we need to hire more female directors. We need to hire more. There are actually a decent amount of female writers, but more writers, more showrunners, you know, in yeah. higher up positions yeah. and executives. But you're not born that. You know, I yes. when I did the show, when I did Conviction, we hired half women PAs, and it was a mandate because yeah. you need very entry level positions. Yes. You know, you people are not born into this. And what I do love about this business is that it's very much still an apprenticeship business. Mm-hmm. You learn by doing. So I think it's really, and it's a very, I mean, just to be blunt, it's a low risk place to take a chance on people who mm-hmm. are not experienced. You know what I mean? Right. If a PA doesn't work out, it's not like a show-stopping production. Yes. So right. I think, you know, I think one of the things to do is on a very entry level to just mandate it. Especially oh, yeah. on the production side. I feel like we really make an effort with that on the writing side and on yeah. the creative end. But on like on the production side, I think it's, not as acknowledged and like really an effort needs to be made there. And there are people doing it. Shonda Rhimes does it. Ava DuVernay does it. There are people like you Mm -hmm. who are really making that effort. But it needs to be sort of across the board. You know, set is still considered a quote unquote technical place, Mm -hmm. you know, with machinery and equipment. Mm -hmm. And it's still to this day has a very masculine vibe about it. And, you know, oh, don't touch that dolly. Oh, don't, you can't move that, you know. And I remember when I PA'd, like, one of the things that I was kind of gung-ho about was, like, I'll move that and I'll pick up bags of trash. And I drove a cube truck, which I had no business doing. But <laughs> I just really wanted, it was so important for me um, to do everything that the guys did. 
did you start out directing or were you a first AD, second AD? I I mean, I started out in music videos. I started as, I, I mean, I really started as a PA um, and then was a coordinator. And then I worked my way up production. And then I worked as an editor because I was working on jobs that were so low budget. There was mm. no money. So I was just like, I'll do that. And then um, I started directing music videos. And what was your first like huge music video that was like sort of started it all, would you say? The first music video I ever directed, which was not huge, was um, I was in my 20s and I was friends with Fred Schneider, who's in the B-52s. And he had done this uh, track for a record for to benefit gun control. And they were going to give him this low budget music video. And he said, would you like to do it? And I said, yeah, of course I would, but they're not going to hire me. Uh, And he said, let me make a phone call and I will call you back. And then he called me back, and this is really dating myself, but he <laughs> said, I told them that your reel was on PAL. You know, that it was like, so I told them that you directed in Europe all the time, and, and they're a nonprofit. <laughs> oh God, they they don't, great. you know, they're a nonprofit. They don't have money. So just tell them you work in France, you got the job. Um, and then I directed that. And it was just, I had known people in that music video industry from being an editor, and it was just. You know, my first videos were like Alanis Morissette and Natalie Merchant. It was this great time of young women kind of singer-songwriter, so it was kind of a natural fit. One thing we've noticed, I'm sure you've noticed this, It's a, we talk about it all the time, especially with women directors, I think more th- much more than with writers, is it's like if you have one, well, let's say, failure or one problem um, episode, you get nixed. Whereas men fail spectacularly over and over again, and they keep getting hired. I mean, is this something women directors talk about constantly? I assume everyone knows this. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not filling you in on something what? you don't yeah. know. Really? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever talked about it with other women. I mean, I, I do. I feel like it's changing now in a very weird and forced way. You know, mm-hmm. I have friends of mine who met on six pilots last season right. that had never met on pilots before and that were completely unprepared. And as a friend of mine said to me, like, it would have been nice if I could have met on one and then met on two the next year and right. kind of got my feet right. under me, you know. Um, but I think for a long time, we all felt compelled to work harder. And so I think, I don't know if I ever talked about that, but I think we all knew it. Mm, Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. Like, we have had so many experiences where a woman will behave on set, a woman director will behave on set in a way that a man would get away with without anyone even thinking about it. Would be expected. Yeah. And, but then the woman is like, well, she can't work here again. Yeah. The crew doesn't like her. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's tricky. You know, I think it's as much as people are very conscious of it now, it still is in practice, truly in its infancy. And it was even, you know, a few years ago, like two years ago, I was on a pilot and I was at Video Village and there was this grip behind me who was nice enough and a good grip. And he was telling really off-color jokes, Mm. super sexist jokes, things that were like – and I mean, I have a potty mouth yeah, and I, I'm yeah. not a prude, yeah. you know, but uh, <laughs> things that were like just making me uncomfortable and made me realize if other people were uncomfortable. And I had to kind of sit there and do the mental math. You know, yeah. I'm out of town. He knows the local crew. If I say this, will I lose them? Well, you know, it yeah. was 
it was hard. And ultimately, and I think about this all the time, I didn't say anything. I told the DP to say something. Mm-hmm. But it's like so embarrassing that I, yeah. you know, this is an I, this is after I've had some success. I still felt the need to have somebody broach the subject mm-hmm. who was the same sex as mm-hmm. he was yeah. so that I wouldn't be threatening or a bitch mm-hmm. or, you yeah. know, and I hate myself for it, but that's the truth. I think that's incredibly common and smart, honestly, to like come up with a barrier. It's like something has to be done, but you have to do it in a way that's not going to ultimately be damaging. Now, I mean, I hope eventually you'll just be able to say, dude. I know. Shut, shut the fuck up. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're going for. By the way, I think I'm, kind of, I'm kind of there now. Uh-huh. I really am. I don't know if it's because I have two daughters. I don't know if it's because I'm just getting old. I, I just... I'm done, you know, and I also think I'm lucky in that I feel fairly secure in my work. So I don't it doesn't feel as risky necessarily, but I'm just like and I also think I think about instances like that. You know, I think that's this thing with this whole post Me Too era Mm -hmm. is it's forced me to look back. And that was before Me Too, Mm -hmm. right, because it's very recent. So it's forced me to look back at not the big decisions I made, but the subtle day to day interactions I had where I didn't do things exactly the way I wanted to, or I held my tongue, mm-hmm. or I laughed when I really was pissed off. or And I, the subtle stuff is so insidious mm-hmm. and in some ways so much more powerful than yeah. the overt stuff because people don't notice it. Yeah. Um, that I think I'm trying at least to be kind of no holds, no holds barred now. Now, there's also the issue, which is a bit taboo, about payment, like, you know, because there's one thing to start hiring women, but then it's also like getting us paid um, and getting the women directors paid what they deserve. Um, you have a story about that. I don't know if you're comfortable <laughs> telling it, I but it, in terms of the badassness of Liz Friedlander, this is part of the lore. Um so a few years ago, my lawyer was making a deal for me for a pilot. And... Um, he came in and he said, well, they want to, you know, the studio wants to give you the same thing that you made last year because they feel like they gave you a big bump last year. Um, but I would like to go in and play the V card. And I said, the V card? And he said, the vagina card. <laughs> and I said, oh, great. What's that? And and he and he said it, but he was really right. You know, he said to me, you and many other female directors started your career at the CW or working for Lifetime where Quotes just start lower. They're not mm-hmm. networked, so they have a separate clause. And then so you kind of incrementally build your quote. But if you were a man whose first job was at NBC, your quote automatically starts higher. And he said, I just want to go in there and call them on it. I'd like to see what their reaction is. And, you know, I think the second he did, they were like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. You know, we would never do that. And he said, great, pay us. You know, and he, it's just it's true. It's like on some level – they're like, well, we just pay you what everybody else right. who has your quote is worth. But it's a different way in. You know, the, the initial opportunities where you start are just much different. What I love about that story is your lawyer is a man. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's great. And I think it's so important that men out there who work with women take that initiative and do exactly what your yeah. lawyer did and say, like, this is not OK. I see it. 
and I'm not going to let it continue. And by the way, I needed him to see it because he's the one who's actually privy to everybody's quotes. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I think we all kind of know what everybody's making, but he's the one who's looking at contract after contract with people with similar experience and seeing that there are men getting paid more. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know that. So, men, let us know yeah. if, uh, <laughs> if you have about the same job as us. Let us know what you're making. Yes, I'm curious. Yeah. So, Liz, creatively, what are you looking for in a script or in a project before you sign on? This is such a hard question. I feel <laughs> like at this stage of my career, I should have this great pat mm-hmm. answer, you know, because you're asked it over and over again. But I don't. You know, I'm looking for... A good story. I'm looking for something that moves me on an emotional and on a visceral level. I'm looking for something that challenges me. Um, and I'm looking for great characters with stories that I connect to. You know, often that's women characters because that's who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but not exclusively. You know, it's it just depends. You know, people used to ask me, like, would you do genre? And I said, no. And then I met Kevin Williamson and did genre with him <laughs> right. for, for years, yeah. you know, and really liked it and liked the craft of kind of making those scares and building those sequences. So it just depends. I mean, I'm very, you know, I think you guys have talked about it on the show, you know, you'll read 20 pages and you'll just know, you know, yeah. whether you want to finish the script, whether you yeah. must Five finish pages, the script. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for me, I mean, certainly. There's a package, you know, if you know people who are on it that can make it mm-hmm. more or less attractive. But it's just a very kind of gut response of like, do I want to spend time doing this? You know, Do I want to spend time away from my family? Do I want to, you know, it's like it's just a kind of a cost benefit analysis. And when things move me, then those are the projects I want to do. Yeah, you mentioned your family. You have three kids, yeah. and you have to travel a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, one thing you've said, which we appreciate, is that you feel like you can't be a great mom and a great director at the same time. What What does that mean? You know, I think in the beginning, when I first had my son, there were the nights where I would be working in the office or in post, and I would rush home because I'd want to be there to give him a bath, and then I'd get home, and then someone would call, and I would have a conference call in the driveway, and then I would get in, and he would be in bed, and therefore, I neither finished my work Mm -hmm. nor saw my kid, Mm -hmm. and I was like, let's try and eliminate that, (laughs) you know? It's just like they're like just like where you just lose, lose, and every I'm miserable because I know I didn't finish my work. He doesn't know I'm home, you know? So I just try... um, And on the days when I need to work, I work, you know, Mm -hmm. and I try to get up with my kids in the morning so that I at least see them. And then often I don't see them at night. Mm -hmm. Um, And I work. If I have work to do, I work. And I'll stay and I'll work till 10 o'clock at night if I have to work. And then if I have days off and, you know, I do move from project to project. So sometimes there are times when I'm off or certainly on weekends, I try and be with my kids. And I try and set boundaries. You know, look, obviously – there are things that infringe on, you know, like incredibly pressing deadlines. But if it's not like an emergency, I try and be with them when I can be with them and kind of instead of kind of sharing attention at the same time, devote attention to one and then attention to the other. That's so smart. It's something Channing Dungy said also, um, and that we really try to somehow work into our own lives, like just 
being one place and focusing on that and then being in the other place and focusing on that. The compartmentalization. Compartmentalization, I mean, man. Look, it's hard. You know, when you've got a work crisis happening and you're with your kids at the farmer's market, yeah. it's, re- it's real hard to be <laughs> yeah. present. Like, I'm not going to yes. lie. But I think even if you fake it, 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 like, some of it rubs off, you know. And it's good for our kids to see us as, like, powerful working people. And working women. I, yeah. I do yeah. think... I mean, look, I've been in enough therapy to, you know, to know that I hope that I am providing my children with a role model of what a working mom looks like. And I had a friend say to me, which I thought was so smart, you know, never, ever tell your kids, like, I'm so sorry. I can't do this. Mommy has to work. I'm so sorry. Mm. Like, don't apologize. Your kids should think that you love your job. Mm. So your kids don't think that you're going to this thing you hate instead of being with them because – then what are they? Right. That your kids should think that you're going to something that you really love, that makes you feel good and important, and that gives you something. And so while I might apologize for missing something, I try to make my work seem positive to them so that they understand when I'm not with them, if I'm doing something, it's because I'm doing something that gives me something. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to have to work on that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's an insight that I'm going to take home and I'm going to noodle on that one. <laughs> Mommy loves her work, Jack. <laughs> and I do. And I've started well, talking with him about it like, oh, this is what's going on. I'm working. And he may not totally understand what I'm saying, but I feel like it gives him a context. Yeah. Um, but, the, but, the, but I could work more on it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> it's hard, especially when you don't love your job. But yeah. You know, and I do love my job, but, you know, there are things about every job yes. that we don't love, of course. Um, okay. So, Liz, we have to talk about The Rookie, which is yes. like the biggest thing in television this fall. And you directed it. Now, speaking of auspices, you were mentioning that one one thing you look at with a project is who's attached. And this had Nathan Fillion attached from the beginning, starring for ABC. The most charming man on and the planet. And he is so charming. And he is one of, like, a true TV star. He is. So tell us about that and the pressure that sort of must have surrounded that project. Or I can only imagine. I would have felt enormous pressure. Um, you know, it's funny. I I got on the project and Alexi Holly was the showrunner and I'd worked with Alexi before and it was good. And then he said, and I think I was even maybe still dancing around the project. Mm. And he said, let's go have lunch with Nathan. Uh, and within five minutes, I looked at Alexi and I'm like, you're an asshole. I'm in. You know, yeah. I mean, like, you know I'm in now. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> you know, um, he really is charming. He's also very, very good. Yeah. I mean, like. Mm-hmm. You know, he there are situations that can be so like you read them and you're like, I just don't know if this is going to work. And then Nathan, he's just one of those guys. He steps in front of the camera and you're like, I don't know how that worked, but it's great. You know, (laughs) Um, he's very charming. Oddly, I didn't feel that much. I mean, I felt I always feel pressure to make things good, you know, and to make things kind of worthy of like people's expectations. So I felt the normal pressure I always feel. On a pilot, I had a really good time on it. You know, having somebody like Nathan on from the beginning, on one hand, you could call it pressure. On the other hand, it is so much freedom because you cast whoever you want around Mm, that guy. You know, you say like, you know, we closed down Hollywood Boulevard and, you know, it was expensive and we're like, but it's a Nathan Fillion show. Mm -hmm. Like, come on, let's spend the money, you know. So it's on some ways it's pressure to deliver. And then in other ways, it's this incredible 
creative freedom that somebody like that buys you. Well, we will definitely be watching The Rookie. um, And we want to close off by asking you our favorite question. What makes you happier in Hollywood? I knew you guys were going to ask this. (laughs) Um, You know, I've been thinking about this. Uh, The one thing that I came up with, which is very simple, is... um, In the mornings on my way to work, I have about five different friends that I call on the way to work. And I have decided, you know, there was a while where I was like, I'm going to listen to NPR and get caught up. It just put me in a bad mood. I I listen to it later. So I feel like being busy um, and not having a lot of time, I try to actually connect socially early in the morning. And it's great. I have like a bunch of women friends who all work. We have kids. Well, you know, and it's great because we call each other and I'll just be like, this morning was a shit show. You know, Uh it's like a very people who like when you kind of have to put on your armor to go to work in the day who you can be very vulnerable with. And, you know, Liz Friedman and I started doing like we would talk to each other on the way into conviction, not about work. It was just like I yelled at my kids this morning. Oh, I didn't yell at my kids. this. It was a great day, you know. (laughs) So I try and connect with like somebody who I really love and can be very open and honest with and kind of let it all out first thing in the morning so that when I get to work, I can kind of do my thing. I love that. I do, too. That is a great idea. I think we How sort we of never... stopped making phone calls. Yeah. I, well, because you start making phone calls just for work. You know, you yeah. like it's that whole mm-hmm. co- like that agent thing of I'm going to roll calls, which yeah. I always think yeah. is funny when yeah. people say that. And and we're so busy and, and you can actually get stuff done in your car. And so I just kind of take that half hour to not mm-hmm. to not not want listen to the news right. and to not work and to actually, you know, talk to my friend Andrea. Yeah. I still talk to Liz Freeman. Sometimes I'll call my brother and yeah. kind of catch up. Yeah. And connect. Instead mm-hmm. of texting, call. Yeah. Yes. I know. It's what a novel concept. Yeah. Oh, my yes. God. You are a Badass. Yes. Thank you, Liz Friedlander, for joining us. Thank um, you for having me. I love this show. Oh, thank so you. So fun to see you and talk to you. Coming up, this week's Hollywood hack will keep you calm when you Google a medical question. But first, a word from our sponsor. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And now it's time for this week's Hollywood hack, which Sarah comes from the wife of our amazing producer, Chuck Reed. It comes from Amanda Reed, who also is a very good friend. And she had this hack. If you Google a medical issue you're having, add the word benign. I can't even imagine how much stress this is going to save people. I know. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? Yeah. She was saying that, like, she had some sort of um, red dots or something, and she first Googled red dots or red bumps or whatever it was, and it, like, came up a leukemia. (laughs) Then she added the word benign, and they were like, oh, those are red freckles. And she goes, oh, yeah, that's what they are. Oh, my god. So it's like, (laughs) you know— I mean, hey, at some point, maybe something will really be wrong. But most of the time, there's not something horribly wrong with you. And we all go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. So especially like for our kids. Yes. You know, just put put benign in there and start there instead of at 10. Yes. And be careful when you're searching images as well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
I never search any images with Violet. Good that, thinking. That goes horribly mm-hmm. awry. Yeah. So it's simple but elegant. Add the word benign to any medical question. And that is it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. For questions or comments, email us or send us a voice memo at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you to our producer, the amazing Chuck Reed, and everyone at Sancola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram at Sancola Sound. Thank you to the awesome ad team at Panoply. And of course, thank you to the badass Liz Friedlander for joining us today. And thank you to our assistant, Mary Merkins, for helping us juggle our insane lives. And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at sfain and Liz is at Liz Craft. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook and join in on the conversation. Until next week, I'm Liz Craft. And I'm Sarah Fain. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. That was so fun to see Liz. I know. I adore her. I want to be her when I grow up. Well, and did you see her bag? Oh, my God. I have bag envy. Best bag ever.